From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, the future is now. And so everything will be combined together and will be presented as a package to patients that will be a a different procedure than what you would have with a traditional type of intraocular lenses. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. In the distant future, your patient will recline in the prep room while a laser beam creates a perfect capsulorexis, pre-emulsifies the lens, and then, to finish things off, creates paracentesis and the main wound. You just tidy things up and take credit for another perfect surgery. How do I know? I've already seen it. ASCRS Winter Update was abuzz with new technologies, and taking pride of place among them was the femtosecond laser. Steve Lane chaired the session, and I got to speak to him afterwards. Steve, let's talk about the femtosecond laser. The videos that Kerry Solomon showed were almost like science fiction. But the question that has to be asked, why why use it? Or, you know, put, put another way, which patients would benefit from it? Well, I think all patients will benefit from the femtosecond technology. Uh, but we still have a long ways to go in proving that. Theoretically, uh, the consistency that we'll be able to achieve with the femtosecond laser from one surgeon to another, and importantly, within each surgeon, in terms of being able to accurately make an incision the same way every single time that really will guarantee that we can hermetically seal the cornea, from being able to make a capsule rexus that will be of consistent size, of consistent shape, and in consistent position, which I think will be very important with new generations of intraocular lenses, is going to be very critical and the fact that we can soften the lens uh, to make the procedure easier, more efficient, and importantly safer for patients is really what the advantages are going to be. Now long term what has to be proven is that we're able uh, to get better results of our predictability of intraocular lenses as a result of making this consistent capsular rexus that overlaps the uh, intraocular lens anteriorly that locks the lens in a better position where we can more accurately predict the effective lens position. Those are things that really need to be proven, but theoretically, and at least in some of the early work, it looks like that may be the uh, case. And uh, that's very, very exciting uh, because I do think that will improve our results. Steve, I'm, I'm going to totally split hairs here. I, I, Understand with the femtosecond laser that the incision in the anterior capsule is round, but is it is it really a a capsulorexis? 
Well, it, it certainly is a capsular rexus in that the uh, um, way in which it's made, although it's made with a laser instead of a uh, uh, forceps or a needle that tears the, the capsule, uh, the strength certainly appears to be equally good, right, of course, regardless that's, that's of what the way I'm, it's done. What I'm, what I'm getting at is, yeah, what the what you feel that the strength and the and the durability is relative to a capsular axis. I think that that again needs to needs to be proven. But some of the early work in terms of taking the remnant, uh, which is uh, some of the work I'm aware of, and stretching it and seeing the um, uh, elasticity of that uh, residual piece and so on, shows that it's every bit as strong as a regular capsule rexus and so I do believe that the the strength granted it's not made in the same way so so maybe the terminology isn't quite correct but the end result is uh, is really the same um, and except that it's better uh, more round better uh, positioning within the on the lens where you want it to be and uh, of a very very consistent uh, size and there's certainly a lot of data available now that uh, that shows that Steve, I'm, I'm going to ask a, a non-medical question here. Uh, but it, it, it's a, it's a, it's a question that we can't get, get away with, with, with this laser. How do you think that the femtosecond is going to be marketed? Am I really going to go to, to my patient and say, look, if you don't pay this premium, my complication rate is going to be higher? No, I mean, this is going to be marketed, I think, to patients in a way in which, uh, it becomes part of a package that uh, is going to be offered to patients. Uh, it's not a matter of uh, laying out a la carte the different possibilities. I'm not going to say to you as a patient, okay, you have cataracts, we need to do cataract surgery. You can have X, Y, or Z lens, pick from that list. You can have a femtosecond cataract procedure or not, pick from that. Um, you can have LRIs or a toric lens, pick from that. There's not going to be, a, I think, an a la carte type of menu for patients. What we're going to say is, this is the way that we do the procedure. And if you want the procedure done, this is how we're going to do it. And for that, this will cost you X, whatever that happens to be. And so everything will be combined together and will be presented as a package uh, to patients that will be a... Um, uh, a different procedure than what you would have with a traditional type of intraocular lenses and traditional ways of taking care of, uh, of um, things, which would include sort of a standard phaco emulsification with a monofocal intraocular lenses and no management of astigmatism. And people will choose to have that or they may choose to have a multifocal lens that corrects for astigmatism with some type of uh, peripheral corneal relaxing incision made by a femtosecond laser and a femtosecond procedure. Terry Kim showed some great tissue glue cases. What do you think about what you saw there, Steve? Well, tissue glue, I think, is, a, is another exciting area in ophthalmology that's starting to gain more and more interest. Initially, the idea was is that tissue glue would essentially substitute for sutures in cataract surgery. Well, we don't use sutures very often in cataract surgery, um, but clearly there are times when a suture is necessary, um, and tissue glue will make that particular case easier. For me, tissue glue, uh, I think, is a very, very safe alternative. I think it is a very effective alternative. 
like so many other things that we do, however, it's going to come down to cost. Is it going to be less expensive in the cases that I need to use a suture to use glue than a suture? And if it's comparable, I'll probably use glue rather than a suture because it's faster, it's easier, it's more comfortable for the patient. That's not something that I have to go back and take out later on, which adds to the convenience for the patient. Um, and I think that it has great applicability. If it's really cheap enough, you could potentially use it in every single case as a belt and suspenders. Yes, our clear corneal incisions are very good, but they're not always perfect, and they may not even always be perfect with a femtosecond laser. We can certainly talk about how good that incision is, but the fact of the matter is you're putting instruments in and out through that incision, and you stretch that, and you, and you, and you potentially tear some of the edges of that, and now you have a very competent wound that you started with becoming more incompetent as, as you do certain pers uh, manipulations uh, within that wound. So tissue glue in that application, I think, has, uh, has some promise, but it's a little bit more limited unless the pricing of it becomes cheap enough that we would be able to use it routinely because it's probably not something we're going to be able to be reimbursed for separately. But tissue glues have seen uh, an increase in all aspects of anterior segment surgery. Certainly with regard to pterygium removal, I routinely use tissue glue uh, to uh, uh, use when I'm doing uh, pterygium cases uh, with removal and conjunctival grafts. It's much uh, simpler than using sutures, much more comfortable for patients, don't need to worry about the loosening of uh, sutures and potentially having to remove them, and uh, I think uh, more rapidly rehabilitates the eye compared to sutures. Whether or not some of these tissue glues may be um, important um, for other aspects of anterior segment surgery is also um, a possibility, uh, even for things like PRK, where the tissue glue may act as a bandage contact lens. But I think one of the real exciting areas that, uh, that wasn't touched upon a great deal simply from a time limitation standpoint is the possibility of adding an antibiotic or some type of pharmacologic agent to the glue. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, you might be able to reduce the frequency of the use of postoperative antibiotics because the antibiotic is essentially a, in a time capsule sitting over the wound, acting like a guard at the door uh, to prevent bacteria, and any bacteria that might be knocking on that door would be knocked off by the, by the antibiotic and the glue. So I think that there's some exciting applications yet to come uh, for tissue glues, but that's what makes this, a, I think, a very exciting arena. That's a great point, Steve. Um, there's a huge difference between multifocal and accommodating lenses. Nick Mamelis showed some great cases. Accommodating intraocular lenses is really what all ophthalmologists want. Uh, we want a lens that works like the one that, uh, that we took out, except have it work like it did when it was 20 years old. Um, and that's the goal of, uh, of a, the whole accommodating lens um, arena. The choices we have, uh, however, presently available have fairly significant limitations in terms of their ability to actually deliver the goods, to really give uninterrupted intermediate and near visual acuity. Uh, some of the newer designs, uh, the new lens, uh, for example, uh, from Israel, the Visiogen uh, AMO uh, synchrony lens, which is uh, currently uh, under scrutiny by the FDA, I think are two very exciting new accommodating style uh, intraocular lenses uh, that 
hopefully we'll see. The Synchrony lens is approved in Europe and is being presently um, uh, used uh, there. Um, it's under uh, investigation uh, and has finished actually the clinical investigation for the FDA phase three clinical trials and uh, the FDA uh, and the company now are working through the uh, details for um, the final application for this to the FDA. So hopefully this is a lens that we'll get a chance to see. I have uh, firsthand experience with the Visiogen. I was a clinical investigator for that particular lens. I put in roughly 20 of those lenses. And I can tell you that the patients got very good visual acuity for both distance intermediate and near, and there clearly is movement of that lens. Um, what's interesting, I think, for everyone to understand is that if you're going to have a successful accommodating intraocular lenses, one of, one of two things has to happen. Either the lens has to move inside the eye, or there has to be a change in shape of the lens inside the eye to accomplish this accommodative change. And if you have a, a lens that doesn't do one of those th two things, then it's not going to work. And interestingly, the synchrony lens is, uh, being a dual optic, moves inside the eye. And we have good evidence uh, by both Tracy and by UBM that the lens does indeed move and moves in the way in which it's supposed to move to accomplish the change that it, that it has. Um, the new lens changes shape, and it can change shape very dramatically, and there are clinical cases now that have been done, and this is continuing to uh, uh, increase, uh, that clearly show significant ranges of accommodation that, uh, you know, are, uh, you know, up to uh, eight diopters of accommodative change. And so this will be a totally new concept and, uh, again, an area, I think, of extreme excitement to uh, to uh, physicians. This is the lens that's based on an avian model, right? Yeah, this is based, uh, yeah, the lens is based upon an avian model and the, the portion of the lens that changes is actually a gel-like structure. And so the gel can change its shape very, very uh, easily uh, and with significant uh, increments of accommodative uh, change. Steve, you spoke about managing cylinder during cataract surgery. I was really impressed with the quantitative approach that you took. Can I get you to talk about that a little? One of the areas of uh, cataract surgery um, that is of great frustration to clinicians in terms of achieving the best result for their patients is the correction of astigmatism. Uh, we have mechanisms now where we really have some tools finally that can pretty accurately correct for astigmatism. Uh, peripheral corneal relaxing incisions or LRIs have been around for a long time. We've used those, but regardless of how experienced the surgeon is, there's a, a, a fair amount of unpredictability to those. Uh, there's a fair amount of variability in the response, and it's simply a healing response issue because we all, as humans, heal differently. And so the effect that we might get from an incision from patient A to patient B can be dramatically different even though we do it in as identical a fashion as possible. And so because of that unpredictability, um, toric intraocular lenses have uh, become available, which, much, which have the potential to much more accurately correct for the uh, cylindrical component. The problem now becomes with this new tool, how do we make sure that we predict the right power of that lens 
and how do we predict the right position of that lens to optimize the results for our patients. And there are some tools that now are available that will help us. The ORANGE system uh, by WaveTech is one such tool, and I am a consultant uh, to uh, WaveTech. Uh, but it allows us to, in a real-time fashion, measure the refractive power of the eye in an aphakic state so that on the table, as we're doing the surgery, when we remove the lens, we can reinflate the eye to a physiologic pressure, measure the eye, and get a very accurate refraction, both in terms of sphere and cylinder, and will give us a power for the lens to be placed. So at a first glance, we can correct the sphere more accurately, or at least double check on our results that we got preoperatively using IOL masters and lens stars and so on. But importantly, it also gives us a, a snapshot of what the cylinder is as well. How much cylinder is there and in what direction is it? And it may not correlate with what we had preoperatively by keratometry. And so we can use this tool to more accurately predict, for example, a toric intraocular lens power and where that lens should be positioned. The positioning of it then can be remeasured um, after the lens is placed and put into the spot that we think is the right place. We can take a measurement and we can see how far off it we might be in both in terms of power and position. And we can rotate the eye at the same time and test it again. These measurements each take about, oh, 15 seconds or so to do, so it's pretty quick. And so we can continually check to see if we've got it right where we want to. And then when we are finally at the final end of it, happy with the position that it's in, call it quits at that point and be pretty reassured that we've got the lens in the right power and in the right place. Another interesting uh, instrument is uh, made by Sensory Motor Incorporated, a German company. Um, and their instrument uses, um, uh, again, information to assure the positioning of a toric lens or a peripheral corneal relaxing incision. This really utilizes the registration process that uh, has been used with uh, laser refractive surgery for a long time. But briefly, a snapshot of the patient's eye is taken preoperatively in an upright position. Essentially, it's a picture. And it measures certain features of that patient's eyes. The pupil size, for example, the limbus, and scleral vessels. And then it registers that. It's put onto a, uh, it's, it's all digitized and put onto a uh, UBM stick, which is then plugged into the unit into the operating room. And now the patient's eye is registered, and so it matches that. It matches the scleral vessels. It matches the uh, pupil size. It matches the limbus. So it, it compensates for things like cyclotorsion when the patient lies down. Exactly. And so as the patient's eye moves, so too does the scale that overrides it uh, that you look through the microscope on. And so you can accurately pr uh, predict where the lens needs to be positioned and all without ever making a mark on the eye. Stephen Lane is in private practice at Associated Eye Care in St. Paul, Minnesota. Ask questions of Dr. Lane or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at jyoungmd at gmail.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. 
be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.